UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. In 2016, Kristen McDonald developed septic shock after a bowel puncture that occurred during gallbladder removal surgery. Kristen became motivated by her own experience to help other sepsis patients and their caregivers navigate the post-sepsis recovery process. To learn more about her story, I encourage you to listen to episode one and two of this series. In today's episode, we will be speaking about post-sepsis syndrome in patients and some of the research being done surrounding sepsis and post-sepsis care. Today, I am joined by Andy Ann from the University of British Columbia. Welcome, Andy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Andy Ann. I am an MD-PhD student at the University of British Columbia, studying under uh, Professor Bob Hancock. So when it comes to post-sepsis syndrome in patients, what are some of the symptoms that you're seeing in some of your studies, Andy, that Kristen is experiencing that you can explain to us? Sure. So what Kristen has described um, is really similar to what a lot of the literature on post-sepsis syndrome is. And despite, you know, this kind of syndrome not being well-researched, some of the studies have shown mainly four um, different, I guess, arms of of post-sepsis syndrome. And the first arm is immune dysfunction, which is what I've been really interested in studying. And it seems to be that these sepsis survivors will have long-term immune dysfunction. And what that means um, to the patient is that oftentimes these patients are more likely to have another infection, another bout of sepsis later on. And it it, literature has shown that um, sepsis survivors are more likely to get another infection or another round of sepsis compared to patients that are hospitalized for, for other reasons. And so perhaps what, um, what, Chris, uh, what Kristen's fevers and lymph nodes, swollen lymph nodes, that sounds a bit like some kind of immune dysfunction. Um, so perhaps that plays a role um, in, in, in that symptom. And another uh, arm, so the the second arm is the brain side of things. And so Kristen has described um, anxiety, PTSD, as well as other um, symptoms like just exhaustion, which also has a neurological component to it. And this may be just due to damage to the brain during sepsis because all the uh, immune, um, all the immune components that are released during sepsis, like this cytokine storm that people have heard about in in sepsis and COVID, that can go into the brain and really cause some long-term damage. Um, So that could be a a reason for some of the cognitive and uh, psychiatric uh, issues that sepsis survivors experience, as well as just, you know, surviving the ICU, which is a extremely terrifying experience, as you probably know, and as most sepsis survivors will understand. And this kind of experience, this kind of experience can leave lasting um, psychological 
issues with these patients because they don't often know what happened to them in the ICU. So Kristen talks about these memory gaps of uh, her partner reading Jane Austen to her. Like that kind of stuff is, is apparently quite common in, in sepsis uh, survivors. And so something that has been tested and it's shown some promising results is keeping an ICU diary. So that could be kept by family members or by nurses or by someone in the healthcare team just to keep track of what happens day to day in the ICU. And that helps fill in some of the gaps in, in, in the memory of these sepsis survivors and really helps them kind of reorient themselves and sorry, reorient themselves um, as to what really happened to them in the ICU. And that seems to help with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Um, another, the third arm really is uh, this kind of fatigue and exhaustion that does have a neurological component to it, but also uh, more research has shown that something goes wrong with the mitochondria, um, which are the energy producing aspects of, of cells in your body. Um, something goes wrong with these mitochondria during sepsis and they're less able to produce energy and they're less, um, I think, sorry, they're they're, uh, they decrease in amount. And for example, if you have these, um, sorry, for example, um, the mitochondria in muscles seems to have some long-term uh, damage and that might explain the fatigue and exhaustion as well as a, a decrease in muscle mass um, in sepsis patients after hospitalization. So that could be something um, that explains her exhaustion and, and joint pain. Um, and the last thing, which isn't really, um, which Kristen hasn't really described, but has been described in other patients is uh, cardiovascular issues. And so problems with the heart um, and with the kidneys. And this, again, seems to be due to some kind of mitochondrial um, issues as well. And so a lot of sepsis survivors will end up having heart attacks, heart failure, um, stroke, chronic kidney disease. And that's really um, something that people are still trying to figure out what's going on. But it seems to, again, be related to um, this immune, uh, this cytokine storm that damages um, a lot of these organs uh, and leading to long-term consequences. And, and I know we talk um, a lot lately because COVID has been a real sort of catalyst for uh, these discussions around long COVID and the, the parallels between, and, and Kristen and I talked about this in her, in her podcast, in her discussion when we were talking about her experience and, you know, th this, the, the whole concept of this diary um, in the ICU is, is so interesting. I think Um to know even just that simplest, uh, you know, idea of writing a diary about what happened in the ICU for that long-term rehab for a patient is something that could be so valuable for that rehab of that patient to get through that piece of that. Because I think, I mean, the cost of of therapy for PTSD is not is not a is not an inexpensive feat for a lot of patients and just that diary that you gave that example for. I mean, if people are listening to this podcast and, 
and have, I mean, we're not through COVID and we're not through sepsis, clearly, that even just that that option for people to to listen to that that piece of information would be is so so valuable um, to even know that that could have been an option for for Kristen for example to have that available or that idea available um, could have made her recovery that much that much easier right um, but going back to COVID I mean there's so many parallels between COVID and sepsis too that um, that there's so there's so many um, of these ideas that we're taking now from COVID that can be used in post-sepsis patients, right? Yeah, so definitely this, I guess the silver lining to this pandemic has really been the increased interest in post-COVID um, and post-sepsis care and really this kind of um, infectious post-infectious disease care because it seems that a lot of infectious diseases will result in sepsis and will result in these long-term consequences. And so, um, unfortunately, you know, you have, you have um, most of, sorry, most of the, I guess, post-COVID research has been focused on sort of the actual effect of the virus on organ systems, and especially that's, that's the lung. And so the post-sepsis, uh, sorry, the post-COVID um, symptom that's most commonly described in research is this fatigue and uh, respiratory issues that follow uh, COVID survivors. But, you know, you still have the same, like, um, psychiatric issues like anxiety and PTSD um, that I'm sure is also a combination of just the ICU or the hospitalization plus perhaps uh, immune damage to the to the brain and and the central nervous system um, there hasn't been a lot of research into um, sort of the immune dysfunction although I suspect it's maybe because there um, it's maybe because the um, how should I describe this Maybe because that we still don't have a lot of long-term, long-term um, information on COVID, and so um, if COVID results in sort of the same immune dysregulation that we see in sepsis, um, perhaps we'll just end up seeing COVID patients being readmitted to the hospital for other infections. And in fact, the most common readmission. Um, sorry, the most common cause of readmission for COVID patients in one study uh, was COVID and second was sepsis uh, and pneumonia. And so it seems like it is some kind of infectious uh, disease recurrence that is occurring in these COVID patients. Although, again, the research has mainly been focused on this respiratory distress and um, fatigue and psychiatric um, issues as well as some other organ systems. And what types of research are you primarily interested in then when it comes to sepsis? So my area of research is mainly focused on this immune dysregulation that I've sort of described earlier. And what's really interesting in, in sepsis from a, from a disease standpoint is that there's both this elevated inflammation that's occurring, but also perhaps the body's way of trying to maintain balance, there's also a, 
decreased inflammatory response or an immunosuppressive response that is occurring almost at the same time, and to try and perhaps balance out this, this immune system that's out of whack in sepsis. Uh, but interestingly, this, this immunosuppression arm seems to continue for a very long time after sepsis, um, while the uh, inflammatory side seems to, seems to dissipate um, near discharge, although there is some research suggesting there is perhaps chronic low-level inflammation that is also occurring in sepsis. So overall, there's this immune dysregulation um, that seems to predispose patients to another infectious disease later on. So you can imagine if your immune system doesn't work, um, then you're going to get another infection, maybe another sepsis, and eventually, you know, rehospitalization and um, perhaps um, eventually the, their last rehospitalization, unfortunately. And so um, I can imagine how scary it is for patients to get some kind of fever and some maybe a cough and you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, is this, is this sepsis again? And that's another definite source of um, anxiety for these sepsis patients. So I'm interested in why that occurs in, in patients. So why does their immune system stay, um, uh, stay dysfunctional for such a long period of time? And what I'm really interested in is this concept of epigenetics. And so genetics is the study of the, our DNA and, and how changes to our DNA will eventually affect um, changes to the proteins that we make. So if DNA is a recipe book, then proteins are like the dishes that we make. And if your recipe book changes in an ingredient or changes a sentence, then the, the dish that you make will be different, maybe different good, usually different bad. Um, but then epigenetics, which, which I'm really interested in, um, epi stands for, or epi means um, outside or above. So it's above genetics. And you can imagine this as um, changing the accessibility of DNA to cellular machinery. And so going back to the recipe book example, uh, epigenetics is like gluing pages of the recipe book together. And so you can't read that page anymore. And so you don't produce that dish. And so some of the epigenetic changes that occur, for example, DNA methylation, is when um, parts of the DNA have these chemical modifications that don't actually change the sequence of the DNA. So it's not a mutation, but it prevents um, proteins that read the DNA from, from reading the DNA, and therefore you don't produce the proteins. And so this is actually an example of how the body can maintain long-term changes to uh, gene expression. So um, usually this is in the context of um, cellular development. So you don't want like a like a skin cell to suddenly turn into a heart cell. And so epigenetic changes maintain that skin cell um, as a skin cell by keeping certain genes turned on and other genes turned off. Um, but it seems to also be involved in a lot of diseases um, with long-term outcomes. And so I'm interested in how that plays a role in sepsis long-term outcomes, specifically sepsis um, immune dys dysfunction. Interesting. That's yeah, incredible work, um, and and you know, groundbreaking work in the sense that I mean, sepsis has been around for decades and decades and decades, and it, it just seems like finally now we're we're coming to a 
a place where, you know, post-sepsis especially and, and sepsis recognition and sepsis prevention and, and is coming, is finally coming to a, a place where um, it's getting sort of that um, attention, I think, that it deserves and, and needs, right? I mean, uh, millions of people a year die of sepsis and, and there's just so many people that don't even know what sepsis actually is. And, and to me, I mean, that's alarming. And as a patient that has had sepsis before, um, and almost lost a child to sepsis, that's, you know, something that, um, I, I guess until you've lived through that, um, I, I guess you don't know what you don't you don't know, right? So, um, I, I find it just fascinating to listen to you, to you speak, um, and listen to all of you. Um, you know, I call you guys experts in the field. Um, talk because I think it's just. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's so refreshing to hear that there's just so much work being done behind the scenes to learn more about um, why sepsis happens um, and why it affects more people, I guess it affects certain people more severely. Um, You talk about how um, some patients will experience sepsis again. I was one of those patients. Um, And you know, going from being a completely healthy person up until I was 34 years old and then becoming a completely unhealthy person after 34 years old is, you know, it's it's a definitely a question. You know, there's had to have been something that became um, mixed up, I suppose, somewhere after that um, initial infection, right? So, yeah, it's just very... Very, very interesting and, and yeah, really cool to see that that's happening here in Canada too. So, um, yeah, and, and to see that you're interested in, and no real personal connection to sepsis too, that there's, yeah, it's just really interesting. So, um, and for patients, I, I know we had talked a little earlier about, um, some, some resources for patients um, on discharge that are, you know, being worked on. And can you tell us a little about a little bit about that, Andy? Yeah. So um, there's the Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines, and so this is a set of guidelines developed by a group of sepsis experts and critical care experts who come together um, and they either update any existing guidelines or create new evidence-based guidelines on really how to best take care of sepsis patients. And this is all based off of the most recent literature. And so they have a a new sort of version that's coming out in November of this year. And most of it has been focused on how to take care of sepsis patients in the hospital. And some of the updates are related to uh, COVID specifically. Um, but um, there's also a, a section that talks about how to take care of sepsis survivors. And so I'll just maybe highlight some of the best practices that they've, they've uh, written out in the guidelines. And so some of these seem 
very, you know, straightforward and you've, you, the patients can probably already know that this is important, but medicine oftentimes is really a guideline specific field and sorry, a guideline based field. And you have to have these guidelines for, for physicians to, to follow and, and have some kind of concrete algorithm perhaps to, to make sure that patients get the care that they need. So the, the first thing is definitely to discuss some of the goals of care after discharge. So um, do you want um, physiotherapy or is maybe palliative care an option? Um, and this definitely needs to involve uh, both the patients and the clinician. So there's ideally an opportunity for this kind of uh, shared decision-making, which makes sure that you know the patients and their families know what's going on and get uh, and get get a get a plan that's best suited for for them a personalized plan really um, the other thing that's obvious kind of obvious as well is follow-up care after discharge and so um, in the states there are some follow-up clinics for sepsis um, but in Canada it doesn't seem like there are that many or at least there aren't any specific ones for sepsis I am aware that they are being sort of developed and kind of repurposed perhaps from, from some of the post-COVID clinics that are coming out. Um, but this kind of follow-up should have, um, should be, so, so this kind of follow-up after discharge should talk about, um, you know, the, some of the physical and cognitive and emotional problems that some of these sepsis survivors will experience. Um, and the last thing really is education. And education is really important um, because, you know, as you mentioned, you go in as a healthy 34-year-old and come out as just a completely different person. And it's all of these things are really unexpected. And, and this kind of um, unpredictability is, is very frightening for a lot of patients. And so having some sort of post-discharge um, document that highlights some of the symptoms that people might experience like hair loss is something that Kristen was very surprised about but it is um, something quite common and something that could be included in some kind of post-discharge post-discharge document that I think um, you're actually working on uh, or the patient advocacy group as part of the action on sepsis group is actually working on and there are also other documents available online from from other hospitals and so those are really the important things for sepsis patients to, to have, or sepsis survivors to have access to um, after their discharge, which hopefully will, will transition them more smoothly into post-sepsis life. And sometimes that life will be very different from um, what, what they experienced before and will be very different for a very, very long time. But having that kind of support and having sort of an expectation of what will happen, I, I think is reassuring. And, and, you know, I, 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 I think from a patient perspective, maybe um, you can talk about that as well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think just knowing that, um, you know, you're not alone. And I think Kristen and I have talked about this and other patient partners have talked about this along the way is that, not knowing that you're not alone in your experience um, is the most uh, sort of 
reassuring thing almost in a sense. Um, you you go through something so traumatic and then you're sort of left to deal with it after the fact. And you think that you're supposed to be back to normal, but then realize that things aren't normal and realizing, I guess, that what your new normal is is completely acceptable, I suppose. And if there's these resources and these other patients that experience similar things, whether you find them through a peer support group or there's documentation on a website or, you know, there's a discharge protocol, um, uh, sort of a flow chart of how, what to expect, when to expect it, or here are your resources and pathways, like a care pathway of which way you can go after your discharge uh, will definitely help uh, read, you know, readmission rates, revisits to hospitals, because people will know what to expect once they've been discharged, right? So mm-hmm. that in itself will also reduce the the impact to the healthcare system, reduce healthcare dollars, all of those things in the end. So I, I just think, you know, the work that is being done by the the different groups now, Action on Sepsis being one of them, it, the the work that is being done is is invaluable, really, because we're we're finally, you know, in a sense, getting ahead of of what has been such a you know such a burden to a lot of patients. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, uh, I, I think as we come to a close, I just want to thank you, Andy, for for taking the time to to chat with us today and and for all the work that you're doing, you know, the lab meetings that we sit in on and and you know, I've gotten to know you over the last 2 years and and everything that you do is just is wonderful and I I mean, I could talk to you for hours. I think just the work you do is so fantastic and and you're just a a wealth of information and and just yeah. So I really really appreciate you coming to sit and chat with us today. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for having me and and sort of organizing this this podcast for for all of these sepsis survivors that definitely need um, a lot of support. And and I think this is such a great way of creating that support and creating that ability to share knowledge. And I'm glad to be a part of it. So again, thank you for inviting me. Not only is sepsis a life-threatening illness, but as you have heard, it can have lasting effects both physically and emotionally. It affects not only the infected, but their families and their loved ones. We hope that by sharing these stories and speaking with the experts you have heard from today, that it will connect with others who have been affected by sepsis in some way. If you or someone you know would like to learn more or get involved in any of our research projects, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca. That's this week's episode of UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors that have come forward to share their stories, our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, researchers, and our patient advisors. If you like this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. 
Join the conversation by connecting on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and let us know what you think about this week's topic. You can also check out our blog for resources and links to topics on this episode at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast.